We're so excited for what God is doing on the west side of town. Thank you, our family that's gathering there. I pray that you will take the gospel now and take it to the streets of the west side of town. And those who are watching online, so glad that you are tuning in. Uh, we have people watching from uh, the German mountains today. We have the Portmans are on vacation for their 20th anniversary. If you have a copy of God's Word, I invite you to turn to the Gospel of John chapter 17. John chapter 17, a very familiar passage of Scripture about the high priestly prayer. I would like to call this the Lord's Prayer. Matthew talks about the model prayer, and he taught the disciples, Jesus taught the disciples how to pray, but this is the prayer of Jesus. And if you have a Bible like mine in red ink, that means these are the words of Jesus. I have entitled my message this preaching hour, The Sanctified Life. The Sanctified Life. And in this prayer, before we listen to God's Word being read, the disciples were giving permission to eavesdrop on this prayer. They're eavesdropping on Jesus' prayer. And Jesus records, John records this prayer in full detail. We know that Jesus uh, loves us. But when you read this prayer, you're actually reading the very words that Jesus prayed for us. And if you look at the scripture, it really is encouraging that Jesus, knowing that his time is coming so close to go to the cross, he takes time to pray for you and me. I think that's pretty amazing about our Jesus. Look at verse number one. Man, this, this, is, this one verse is so much of power. John chapter 17 and verse number one underline these four words. When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Wow, the hour has come. And if there was a music group in the presence in that garden of Gethsemane, there'll be a drum roll for the hour has come. Glorify your son that the Son may glorify you. And that's the words that this prayer is being unfolded. The hour has come. Oh, there's a great build-up to this hour. But I invite you to follow with me from verse number 13 to verse number 19. That's where much of our time is going to be spent this morning. And John records, this is now Jesus' prayer. Verse 13, but now I am coming to you. And these things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them, because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Verse number 15. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for, the, for their sake, I consecrate myself that they also may be sanctified in truth." If you listen to the entire prayer, and if you read it, you'll underline the word multiple times. You also will underline the word glory multiple times. World glory, world glory. 
The previous chapter, in chapter 16 and verse number 33, Jesus said these words, I have said these things to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. And then he goes into this prayer. You'll see the word sanctification. It's a big word. The word sanctification means to set apart for a special use. Sanctification is to be set apart. And you and I are set apart in conversion when we come to know Jesus Christ. We are dedicated. We are set apart and we are dedicated. In this the sanctified life, allow me in this preaching hour to talk about the sanctified, the sanctified life Theological implications and practical implications. Theological implications and the practical implications. So let's look at this text together. The, sanctifi the sanctified life, the theological implications from verse number 13 and following. Jesus came for the Father's glory. He came for the Father's glory. He was sanctified unto death sanctified unto death. Now, you may be seeing, but Jesus was sent from God, so he is God. Why must he be set apart? He's been set apart to come to die for us. But in this text, what benefit the disciples hear that Jesus is praying, sanctify me, consecrate me? What Jesus is saying in this sense, he has already been set apart for God. Now, is being set apart for death. The hour has finally come. The journey to the cross is gathering pace. You can see the shadow of Golgotha is upon him. And Jesus is praying these words, and for their sake I consecrate myself, that they may be sanctified in truth. Yes, this sanctification refers he's being separated and dedicated unto death. God the Father has sent his Son to die for us. John chapter 3 and verse number 16. So Jesus Christ came to make his Father our Father. He came, he sanctified, he was separated for this purpose. Paul writes it well. 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 21. For this reason he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Now Jesus, he lived a sinless life. And he's right now in the garden uh, praying. And the purpose for his death, without the death of Jesus, there's no truth in the gospel. So Jesus had to be set apart unto death. Because you look at the law from the Old Testament coming to the New Testament, without the shedding of blood, there's no forgiveness of sins. So Jesus is saying, I am now being set apart for the main event that I have come. Jesus was sent to the world on mission. And his mission was to die, be buried, and rise again so that you and I will have a gospel truth to stand upon. Without the death, the burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, you and I don't have any ground to stand. Without the death, the burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, we stand on man's opinions. And you know our opinions are. They change like the weather. So the gospel of Jesus Christ 
is God's written word to us that he lived, he died, he rose again on the third day, now seated at the right hand of God the Father. It's not an opinion. It's not an imagination. It's a revelation that Jesus Christ came, and that's what he did for us. So God is talking to us, and, and I'm looking at this verse in verse 19. And for their sake, I consecrate myself. For their sake, I'm separating myself unto death. For whose sake? For the disciples and for us. I'm dying for you so that you could have a truth to believe in. That's what he's talking about. Separated from the world unto Jesus. Romans chapter 5 and verse number 8. But God shows his love for us in this while we were yet sinners. Christ died for us. So in this high priestly prayer, Jesus is praying, Father, the hour has finally come. I separate myself now unto the upcoming death that I will suffer for those whom you love. And if you're in the room today, if ever you felt, I am never loved before, let me remind you, Jesus died for you. That's how much he loves you. You know, sometimes we have friendships, and some friendships, some friendships are like, I love you to death. That's a lie. <laughs> Jesus loved you to death. He died for you. And the commitment that Jesus is showing to us, I am sanctifying myself. From the human point of view, Calvary was a revolting display of man's sin. But from the divine point of view, the cross revealed and magnified the grace and the glory of God. That theological implication, we need to understand that. That God loves us, the sanctified life. He came, you are set apart unto death. He died, real death. So Jesus left the highest enjoyments of his Father's bosom and set himself apart for death and suffering so that you and I can spend eternity if we choose to believe. If you are here today sitting on the fence, I urge you, I push you over the fence to believe. <laughs> because Jesus Christ came to die for you. And if you don't get this bedrock event that happened as part of your faith, you don't know Jesus. And if in New York City we did a documentary and many of the Yankees in New York City, said, wow, Jesus is a good person. He sits up there and just watches us. I don't want nothing to do with him. Let me add to that. Jesus is a good person that died for you. And he's just not sitting and doing nothing. He's interceding for you. And he's watching down for us right now as we speak. He died for you, Warrington that you may take the good news of Jesus Christ into the streets of Warrington so they, they can come to know him as Lord and Savior. So now Jesus asked the Father, may I now return to my previous position of glory, 
because I'm about to exchange humiliation for glorification. That's what he's talking about. In the book of Genesis chapter 1 and verse number 1, in the beginning, God, Jesus was present. John chapter 1 and verse number 29, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Now Jesus is going to reclaim his rightful place on his throne after his death. And now Jesus is saying, Father, I'm ready to come to you. Father, the hour has come. I'm ready to be home. And when I am coming to be there in, at home with you, I have created a way so all the people that we love can follow that way and spend eternity with you. So for this purpose, Jesus Christ came to die for us. While we were yet enemies, while we were not friends with God, he died for us. The sanctified life. Jesus came, he lived, and he died for the Father's glory. So he was sanctified unto death. And Christ Jesus, today the tomb is empty. The throne is occupied because my Jesus does not lay in a tomb somewhere. My Jesus is sitting at the right hand of God the Father, occupied his throne that rightly belongs to him. That's where Jesus is seated as I speak. And you would think, will he ever do this for me? We may say, Lord, as the Puritan John Flavel writes, and I quote, Lord, condemnation was ours that justification might be mine. Agony was yours and victory mine. Pain was yours and ease was mine. Stripes were yours and healing mine. Vinegar and gall was yours that honey and sweet be mine. The curse was yours and the blessing mine. Death was yours and eternal life mine. So Jesus took the rightful place on the throne because he took the place on the cross, not instead of you, but in place of you so that you and I do not have to carry a cross up Calvary's hill. We can walk up the hill and bow to the cross because he died for you and for me. The blessed gospel of Jesus Christ. That's the theological implication of what Jesus Christ did for you and me. And he's praying in the garden, Lord, the hour has come. I'm ready. I've listened to a preacher this week, and he said this really interesting parable. He said, like, if you were a kid and you built a boat, and you carved a boat from a piece of wood, and you loved to play with your boat, but one day you lost your boat, and you looked everywhere for it and you could not find your boat. And it's one Saturday morning, you're walking down Palafox, and you see through the glass your boat. And you look at the glass and say, that's my boat. How did it get there? And you go inside the store and you take the boat and now the boat has a price. 
and you'll tell the owner of the store, that's my boat. He said, it's not your boat anymore. But I made this boat. Well, it has a price tag. So little boy put his hand in the pocket, count all his quarters, and pays for the boat. And he purchases the boat, and as he's walking back home, he says, boat, you are mine. I made you, and I lost you. And now I purchased you. You are mine. You are twice mine. Because I made you, and I purchased you. And the blood of Jesus Christ that shed on Calvary's cross makes us twice his if you believe. He has made you, he has lost you, and he has purchased you not by pennies, but by the blood of his son, Jesus. And he says today, if you are listening to me, you are twice mine. So the theological implication of the death and burial of Jesus Christ should not be taken lightly. It's on the very bedrock that we place our faith that Jesus is not in the grave anymore. So what does it mean for you and me? Look at the scripture, what he's talking about in verse number 15. I do not ask you to take them out of the world, but that you keep them in the world. They are not of the world, just as I am not. Sanctify them in your truth. Your word is truth, in verse 17. Without the death, the burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, we got no truth. So you and I are sanctified. We are separated, consecrated unto truth. And what is truth? That Jesus is the Son of God, born of the Virgin Mary, lived a holy life, sinless, went to the cross, died, buried, rose again, so that we can place our faith in Him. Based on that theological affirmation, this now calls us to walk for Him. So as a Christ follower, we need to be sanctified by truth. Listen, church, do not be a Christian because of the culture you live in. Do not be a Christian because of a, of a religion that your grandparents were a part of. Be a Christ follower because of the truth of Jesus Christ experienced in your life. That he has died for me, that he has died in my place, that now I should not be in a lost eternity, but I could be spending my life in his eternity, which is called heaven. So if you are a truly Christ follower, you are sanctified by that truth. And that's the bedrock of our belief. God's truth has been given to us in three editions. Allow me to expound. Truth is His word. Look at verse 17. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. We have a book right? And if anyone wants to point you to any lies, you go to the book. So we are separated from the world by the book. And he talks about his death, his burial, and resurrection. His word is truth. His son is truth. John chapter 14 and verse number 6, Jesus says, I am the way, the, the truth, and the life. No one goes to the Father but by me. Now let me give a clarification in the English language. 
if I may. He is not a truth. He is the truth. That's a definite article. He is the one, the one and only truth. Because if he is a truth, you and I will be a Hindu because add him to the list. To the five million or billion gods, add him to the list. He is a definite article. He is the way. The son is the way. So his word is truth. His son is truth. His spirit is truth. His spirit is truth. First John chapter 5 and verse number 6. And the spirit is the one who testifies because the spirit is the truth. So looking at this prayer and Jesus saying, the hour has come for me to experience death so that you can have a truth to believe in. And if you are here today, Jesus died to give you this truth so that you can believe in. You see, the enemy is a father of all lies, roaming this world, creating doubt, and if you don't know the real truth, I'm here to tell you, Jesus died for you, and he calls you to have a relationship with him. God has not given speculation. God has not given imagination. God has given revelation. The truth is revealed by God unto his glory. So salvation is not an opinion of man. Salvation is a revelation from God. So when you come to know Jesus Christ, it's a position. Salvation is a position. And sanctification is a process. Every day we are being conformed more and more like Him. Unfortunately today, that many of us, when you took, look at the word salvation, in believing in Christ, His death, His burial, and resurrection, this truth needs to set us apart from the world. We sang earlier on about darkness. If the world is dark, you need to be the light. If the world is lies, you need to be the truth. If the world is dead, you need to bring life. So you need to know that when you come and believe in the death, the burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, you do not go with the flow in this world. Because the truth will stand out in the midst of lies. Can I get an amen? amen? So if you believe in the truth, stand for truth. Stand for truth. Or don't be a chameleon. There's a creature in Africa, I'm sure there's a creature in America. It's color-coded through the area that it's in. Whatever the area that's in, the chameleon just sets himself to be camouflaged wherever it's in. So you get the point. If you believe in Jesus Christ and what he's talking about here, you must stand out. You cannot be camouflaged in. And sadly today, the cost of our salvation is death, but the life of our salvation is camouflage. 
I don't want to offend people. Well, people think I'm weird. They might spit on me. Let me tell you guys, if anyone spits on my face because of truth, I count it a privilege because they did it to Jesus. In the business decision that you make, be the light. In the classroom that you walk in, be the light. In the community that you live in, be the truth. It costs the life of Jesus for us to have the truth. And sadly, we will become chameleons. That is why Paul writes for us in Romans 12 too, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what the will of God is, what is good and pleasing and acceptable. We live in a culture where we don't offend anybody. Truth offends lies. And you've got to stand for truth. Oh, maybe next time I'll tell them the truth because today was just not the right time. That right moment, you stand for truth. You stand for truth because it cost the life of Jesus to give you truth. It hurts King Jesus watching, looking down on his people, turning the back on truth. So if you, all you have in Jesus is a decision and no delight, you did not meet Jesus. You cannot say, I walked down the aisle and all I have is a decision. Everyone in the Bible, everyone is so messed up in the Bible. When they meet Jesus, they have a delightful life. Because when I have trials and when I have challenges, my Jesus will help me through. So if all you have is a decision and no delight, you have not met Jesus. Because your life will not be the same. Because you are twice mine. I lost you. And I bought you. You're mine. And if you are mine, shine bright for me. Don't camouflage in the environment where you find yourself in. Stand out for Jesus. But that's how Jesus died, and that's what he has done for us theologically. Jesus was sanctified unto death, separated for death, so that you and I can be sanctified and separated unto truth. So we live in truth. That's the great theological implication of this text. And Jesus is praying this to the Father that they may believe in who I am and believe what I'm about to do for them. Aren't you glad you have truth? Aren't you glad that the gospel of Jesus Christ is not a bunch of lies? Aren't you glad that someone says, I love you, look into my eye, I love you just the way you are, and I love you too much to leave you that way. I'm going to send my son Jesus to die for you so you'll know that. Aren't you glad that we have a God that we can call who's alive and alive forevermore? Aren't you glad when you're down, he can lift you up? Aren't you glad when you're sad that he can make you glad? That's the true gospel of Jesus Christ. A gospel of truth 
that which we stand on and all other ground is sinking sand. They're good ideas, they're good philosophies, but it's not truth. It's not truth. Look at the books you read, look at the people you listen to. If it's not based on this book, it ain't truth. Well, I'm getting Southern now, you see that? <laughs> wow, you got me on tape. But that's how Jesus died. Jesus died to lay a foundation of truth so you and I can be separated from truth. But that's how we died. Let me tell you how we lived. Let me give you the practical implications. We know the theological implication. Let's look at the practical implication of the sanctified life. The sanctified life in the world we live in today. I know you cannot go and teach doctrine everywhere you go. I mean, if you are talking doctrine everywhere you go, you'll have very few friends. We call them members at Olive. <laughs> But there is a practical implication. I wish Jesus, when he died, he just pluck us out of this world and for we can be with him. That would be awesome. Then you don't have to buy gas. You don't have to pay insurance. You don't have to do all those things, pay mortgage. You don't have to do all of those stuff. But Jesus said, I came to be separated unto death so that you will be separated unto truth. And now go and live that in the world. That's where the challenge is. That's when today, before we leave, and before Warrington, before you leave and go home, you need to kill that chameleon. It's not against animal rights, I promise you. Kill that chameleon. It's a pest, and it's bothering you to be a witness for King Jesus. So let me tell you how Jesus lived. The Jesus life is a life of love. Full stop. I wish I could expand that. The Jesus life is a life of love. His presence was love. His purpose was death. So wherever Jesus was, wherever Jesus went, there was a strong presence of love. Strong presence of love. We know how we died. Let me tell you how we lived. The Jesus life in this world. So think with me, imagine, just imagine with me, what was it like to be around Jesus? Let me just point a few highlights. When Jesus was around, man, what did he bring into the community? Jesus, in Matthew chapter 18 and verse number 2, he had a child on his lap. Wow. You know, sometimes we get the children aria. Jesus had a child on his lap. We're talking about adoption month. I'm telling you guys, go and bring a child home. That's what Jesus did. That's what, wherever he was, it was love. Matthew 18, 2. <laughs> Later on in Matthew chapter 9 and verse number 10 and 11, Jesus was a friend of sinners. Look at Matthew the tax collector. Matthew came to know Jesus. He threw a party in his house. Jesus is lounging in Matthew's house and all the Pharisees said, hey, look at Jesus. He's hanging out. He's a friend of sinners. Jesus hang out with the most notorious people. And sometimes we are like Pharisees. We want to be hard on others and easy on us when we need to be hard on us and easy on others. That's what Jesus did. He hung out with notorious sinners. John chapter 4, Jesus traveled roads less traveled. He sat and talked to the Samaritan woman. 
You see, even his disciples did not want to go the route because Jews did not talk to Samaritans. Jesus told them, if you want to make a difference in this world today, choose to do new things. Travel roads less traveled. You'll meet people you never reached before with the gospel of Jesus Christ. So what I do all the time, when I travel, I take Uber. I don't rent a car so I can have a conversation with someone with Jesus. I met a guy who was Polish, and I'm like, my English, he's Polish. How are we going to do this? I pulled up Google Translate on my phone. I said, do you know Jesus? And I added by his ears, uh-huh. And I said, uh, do you follow him? And it was, Google is helping me out. Siri don't help me so much, but Google is good. How about Matthew, Mark chapter 10 and verse 46? He was a lover of the homeless and the marginalized. How did Jesus know Bartimaeus' name? I know you will say, he's Jesus. Because Jesus pays attention to the homeless and the marginalized. Do you do that? That's what Jesus did. Look at Mark chapter 5 and verse number 25 and following. There was a woman with the issue of blood. And Jesus asked, who touched the M of my garment? Because Jesus took time through the crowds. He hung out with people so they can experience Jesus. What about John chapter 13? He washed the disciples' feet. Talk about humility. What about John chapter 17? Cooking breakfast on the shore for the disciples. Bobby Taylor, if you are listening, Bobby is convinced that Jesus was frying mullet. He is convinced. And what Jesus was teaching disciples how to eat the backbone. That's what Bobby Taylor is convinced. But Jesus was hospitable, going the extra mile and cooking for his friends. And remember, one of the guys there, Peter, was in that group. And you know what Peter did? But guess what Jesus did? I'll cook for you. That's what Jesus did. It was so much fun to be around Jesus. Because he, his presence was love. But the first, the first miracle was great. John chapter 2. He turned water into wine at the wedding of Cana. I did a wedding yesterday. And uh, Olive Catering was a chef, Bob, and, and, and Darlene, and the entire team. I promise you, I did not find, I did not find Chef Bob and, and, and his sweet wife praying to turn sweet tea into wine. Don't do that, okay? <laughs> but everything else that Jesus did was love. Jesus spent much of his time with people who were the most furthest from him. Read the Bible. So imagine one of the guys who are handling Jesus' calendar, and you look at Jesus, are you kidding me? Are you serious? We've got no time for them. Oh, really? I mean, Jesus' calendar did not match the religious people. Jesus' calendar matched the ambitions of his father. How's your calendar? So look at the life of Jesus. Not only uh, Jesus he, uh, was life, he, he was fun to be around, but Jesus spent much of his time on succession and not success. Jesus spent much of his time on succession and not success. Look at the life of Jesus. Although he spent much time with the marginalized, <clears throat> 
He spent much of his three and a half years with those three disciples, became 12 disciples, became 72, became 500. Empowered by the Holy Spirit, Acts chapter 6, the apostles now choosing deacons, persecution broke out, the church spreads and persecuted Christians in Acts chapter 8. The apostles stayed and the persecutions happening and they were moving. Acts 8, 8, and there was much joy in the city. And they began to spread until they reached Antioch. When they came to Antioch, Antioch was the first sending church, Acts chapter 13. Because Jesus spent time on succession, not only success. So Jesus knew, when I go back to the Father, the kingdom of God will move on. So he spent time with disciples. He grew the group. He empowered them. So that's why the apostles grew the Christians and sent them. I will give time to the prayer and study of God's word. You wait on tables. So we see the impact of Jesus. So how do you know that Antioch became a sending church? Why? Jesus was a sending savior. And you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon me. And you will be my witnesses. Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, uttermost parts of the world. He did not tell them you'll be running for your life. He told them you'll be my witnesses. But let me tell you, it's worth while running for your life for Jesus. And when you get comfortable in your faith, God will raise up a soul. You see, the persecuted church never died. It's the prosperous ones that die. Christ followers, just like how Jesus, His presence was love, now I'm asking you, wherever you are, must be love. When you walk into your office in love, when you walk into your business in love, when you walk into your practice in love, when you walk into your classroom in love, even when you're walking in your neighborhood, walk in love because Jesus' presence was love. He died in victory. He lived in victory. Jesus brought heaven to earth. Now he's asking us to do the same. So the Christ follower, what does it mean for us? And Jesus is saying, Father, the ones that you've given me, I'm sending them to the world. I'm sending them to Warrington. Go shine bright the gospel in Warrington. And I know you are, we are in the world, but not of the world. But we are in education for Christ. We are in law enforcement for Christ. You are a teacher for Christ. For Christ. You are in healthcare for Christ. Because you are in Christ. The people around you will have a better opportunity to know Jesus because Jesus is sending you. He separated you and commissioned you to live for him wherever you are, where you live, where you work, and where you play. That's what Jesus is calling us. So I'm challenging us today. If Jesus, the presence was love, how much more for us now the presence must be love? You see, we always talk about a purpose-driven life. Praise God. Rick Warren wrote a great book, The Purpose-Driven Life. But I also like to add something. You need to have the presence-driven life. You need to carry and know that you carry the presence of Jesus wherever you go. You carry with you the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. You cannot check Him out. He is with you. 
So wherever you go, you are sanctified, not to sit in a holy huddle. You are sanctified, separated, empowered, and sent into the battlefield, which is also our mission field. So wherever you go, you need to love. And I know if you're a Christian and you're listening to my voice, you say, Sean, but I love those who are far away from God. Do they know they are loved? Do they feel they are loved? Because it teaches us it doesn't matter what you say. People forget what you say, but they'll always remember how you made them feel. So every one of you who's a Christian will say, I love them, Sean. Do they feel that? I bet you that woman that caught in the act of adultery, when Jesus said, go now and sin no more, she felt love. When John chapter 4 records for the Samaritan woman, she felt love. She didn't hear love. She felt love. And so God is calling us now to make Jesus the talk of the town. I'm asking you, make Jesus the talk of Pensacola. Build new relationships. Make new friends. You'll learn in the process. Redefine community that you don't meet in the Sunday pew, but you meet in the couch at home. What I'm trying to say, love difficult people because you are one of them. Love difficult people, and your wife is nudging you right now because you're one of them. So I did a devotional by Bob Goff on Friday, and the challenge of the devotion is this. This is a challenge. Two questions. Who gets under your skin? How can you treat them differently today? Wow. <laughs> this next two months, a lot of family are going to come to town, and a lot of them get under your skin. Bake a cake for them and love them before they get here. Love difficult people because you are one of them. My time is gone. But I want to challenge you. The closer you get to Jesus, the more you care and love for those furthest from Him. The closer you get to Jesus. Too much is given, much is required. Okay? The closer you get to Jesus, the furthest you care for those furthest from As John comes to play, I told pastor and I told our church team this week. I said, pastor, I believe that harvest is near. I believe that. Harvest is near. And I believe when you look at the PGA golf tournament, this small putt here defines first place and second place. It defines a green jacket or no jacket. It defines 10 million or 2 million. Church, we are this close. Harvest is near. But let me tell you very boldly and very emphatically, the harvest is plentiful. The laborers are not few. The laborers are just preoccupied with themselves. 
you were not separated to hang out with people like you. You were separated so you can shine bright where there's no gospel. And I'm praying today as we are all on our feet today. I saw a prayer today and, I, and I'm praying that you'll pray this prayer with me. If it's on the screen. I pray that you'll pray this prayer with me. And John will close us out. And if you don't know Jesus, you are sanctified unto death so you could be sanctified unto truth. His presence was love, so now our presence must be love. With gusto, like you believe in it. Let's pray this prayer, and John will lead us. Let's go. God, give me the courage to be bold and to seek you in a world that turns away from you. Help me to become more like Jesus and honor you with every decision I make. In Jesus' name, amen.